Welcome to Mosaic Podcasts. We hope you enjoy the following recording from Mosaic Church, Leeds, based in the United Kingdom. For more podcasts and information on Mosaic Church, please visit mosaic-church.org.uk. Thank you for listening. So 1 Samuel, chapter 4, and we're just going to read the opening 10 verses. And Samuel's word came to all Israel. Now the Israelites went out to fight against the Philistines. The Israelites camped at Ebenezer and the Philistines at Aphek. The Philistines deployed their forces to meet Israel. And as the battle spread, Israel was defeated by the Philistines, who killed about 4,000 of them on the battlefield. When the soldiers returned to camp, the elders of Israel asked, Why did the Lord bring defeat upon us today before the Philistines? Let us bring the ark of the Lord's covenant from Shiloh so it may go with us and save us from the hand of our enemies. So the people sent men to Shiloh, and they brought back the ark of the covenant of the Lord Almighty, who is enthroned between the cherubim. And Eli's two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, were there with the ark of the covenant of God. When the ark of the Lord's, co- of the Lord's covenant came into the camp, all Israel raised with su- such a great shout that the ground shook. Here in the uproar, the Philistines asked, what's all this shouting in the Hebrew camp? And when they learned that the ark of the Lord had come into the camp, the Philistines were afraid. A god has come into the camp, they said. We're in trouble. Nothing like this has happened before. Woe to us. Who will deliver us from the hand of these mighty gods? For they are gods who struck the Egyptians with all kinds of plagues in the desert. Be strong, Philistines. Be men, or you will be subject to the Hebrews as they have been to you. Be men. And fight. And so the Philistines fought, and the Israelites were defeated, and every man fled to his tent. The slaughter was very great. Israel lost 30,000 foot soldiers, soldiers. And the ark of God was captured, and Eli's two sons, Hopni and Phineas, died. Well, as Dave said, we want to give you a really warm welcome to Mosaic. Uh, if you've just joined us tonight, then we're actually in a, a, a preaching series uh, called Kings, Prophets, and Monsters. And I guess what we're doing is walking through this book of the Bible verse by verse. And we found out so far that God has got a very special relationship with this special group of people. They have some special land in which they're to have a special relationship with him. He's picked them out by his grace, but things have gone terribly wrong at this point. And so God is raising up a special leader to sort of whip the people into shape. And his name is Samuel. Last week, uh, we had sort of a fly-on-the-wall documentary, if you like, about the first time that this leader, Samuel, hears from God. Literally, it's like the camera's in his bedroom as he gets to hear God's voice audibly for the first time. And he receives sort of an incredible prophecy about God's rejection of the current priesthood, which is Eli and his two out-of-control sons, Hopni and Phinehas. So to summarize this introduction, verse 1 of chapter 4 says, And Samuel's word came to all Israel. It was really sort of a shorthand way of saying, to be continued. Because what we have in the sort of verses 2 through to 10 is a sort of look back into what was happening in Israel as Samuel was a boy. So the baddies in the story are the Philistines. And they were the invading hordes from the coast who basically had a scorched earth policy. So they would destroy anything that moved. They enjoyed 
killing everything and anything that got in their way. And the first few verses describe what happens when these Philistines meet God's chosen people in the battle arena. And basically, they easily defeat Israel. And Israel cannot believe it. Remember, they are God's special people. And so they're stunned. They're hit really hard. 4,000 men die on this first encounter. And when I read it, I think uh, it's probably a bit like the Americans felt when 9-11 hits. Some of you will remember where you were on 9-11. And uh, there was a tremendous, uh, I guess, rush of uh, anxiety as we watched uh, all the events unfold on TV. In In particular, what happens both on that day and in the subsequent few weeks and months was the terror it struck into the hearts of Americans. This was the first time on their soil terrorists had been at work. And I guess as Brits, uh, many of us were sort of grown up in the years of the IRA and we're used to terrorist acts happening on our homeland. But for the Americans, they were shocked that it would happen on their turf. And my feeling is there's a similar sense going on for the Israelites here. And it forces their leaders to do some soul-searching. And so they ask questions. Verse 3, why did the Lord bring defeat upon us today before the Philistines? It's a great question for them to ask. And it's actually a good question for any of us to ask if things are going wrong financially, with your relationships, with your career, with life in general. It's important you don't just try and fix it, but you have a moment to stop and ask, why God? Now, the secular humanistic approach, which is sort of the culture that we live in, it's not very religious, they say the problem is out there and the solution is inside of yourself. So you've got people like Oprah Winfrey, uh, who would say that the secret to success in life is to ignite the light within. Or you've got Joel Olstein, he leads the biggest church in America, it's about 40, 45,000 people go to it. And I've not read this book, but I'm very worried by the title, which is Become a Better You. If you just work harder, if you apply yourself, if you just have the right skills, the right input, then you'll be okay. Your, sort of, your life will amount to something. And the problem that I have with that is that the Bible teaches that the problem isn't outside of us, but actually is inside our hearts and minds. It's called sin, and the solution and the answer is found only outside of ourselves in Christ. And I guess the Israelites fall somewhere between these positions because they think to themselves, let's get the ark. Now, Don't be thinking Noah's Ark, you know, they're going to drag a big empty boat into battle or anything like that. This is the Ark of the Covenant. It's actually given a very fancy name in verse 4, the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord Almighty, who is enthroned between the cherubim. What you need to think of is this, an important box that was made hundreds of years before that contained the stone tablets on which was written the Ten Commandments. This is obviously just a replica. This is not the real deal. Okay, And it usually sat behind a very thick veil in Israel's worshipping center in a special zoned-off area called the Most Holy Place. 
And on top of the box stood two carved cherubim, one at each end, that were, I guess, a bit like lions with wings. And in between them was the place where God would present himself here on earth and communicate with people. It was called the mercy seat. And so the question is, why did Israel, in their moment of trouble, look to the box, look to the ark? Well, there's probably two reasons at this point. Firstly, because of the Jordan and the Jericho. Back when the Israelites were at their moment of crossing the Jordan River into the promised land, they'd spent 40 years in the deserts. Just as they were entering into the promised land, they were faced with the River Jordan. There was no bridges, no way to cross. And so what they did is they took the ark on their shoulders and the priests carried the ark and they walked straight into the river with the people of God following behind. And literally, as the priest took the first step into the water, the water suddenly rushed back and drew back. And there was this, I guess, damp riverbed for them to walk across to get to the other side safely. So in their minds, they'd be thinking Jordan. That was really important. But secondly, they'd be thinking Jericho. After they crossed the Jordan into the promised land, they started to occupy and take cities and land. And one of the biggest challenges that first appeared to them was the city of Jericho. Huge, great, thick, impregnable walls. And instead of constructing some ramps and battering rams and, I know, catapults and storming the walls, they had a different sort of plan. Again, they hoisted the Ark of the Covenant onto their shoulders. They set an armed bodyguard around it. And all they did was this. Once a day, they worked their way round the city wall and then rested. And for a whole week, that's all they did. Once a day, they would walk around the walls until the seventh day, where they decided to do it three times. And on the third time, they went crazy, let out a loud cry, shouted, a bit like that, and um, perfect timing. And they blew their trumpets, and miraculously, the walls began to crack and suddenly tumble down. They're able to invade the city and take it. So they think to themselves, Jericho. But also, not only were they thinking of the Jordan and Jericho, but also the presence of God. The ark was held in such high regard because it was the place where God would dwell with his people. It was the place of his holy presence. A bit like a throne is where the king or queen sits. For them, the, the, the ark of the covenant, that was where God came and spoke to the people. And so who better to have on your side when the battle is brewing? You know, you call God in as your enforcer. He's like the hired muscle in the fight when they're facing such a feared opponent as the Philistines. And so back to the story, what happens? Well, the elders call on Eli's two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, who were there with the Ark of the Covenant of God. And when the Ark of the Lord's Covenant came into camp, all Israel raised such a great shout that the ground shook. So what we know from the text is that there was at least 30,000 men there that just shouted their, sort of like their heads off as this ark came in. And they, they knew that that was so significant for them winning the battle. You know, I live probably about half a mile from Ellen Road where Leeds United play. And on the rare occasion they score, um, you can hear the 20 or 30,000 fans 
um, like let out this roar. And if you can just about hear it sort of over the noise of helicopters flying above and the police, that is, that are looking for trouble and all that sort of thing. But I hear it from my house. Here in the story, the Philistines are about two miles away. And they hear the ground rumbling with this shouting that's coming from the Israelite camp. And look at what they say, verse 6. Hearing the uproar, the Philistines ask, what is all this shouting in the Hebrew camp? And when they learned that the ark of the Lord had come into the camp, the Philistines were afraid. A god has come into the camp, they said. We're in trouble. Nothing like this has happened before. Woe to us. Who will deliver us? There are gods who struck the Egyptians with all kinds of plagues in the deserts. So they're scared. And rumours obviously start to spread among their camp. And they didn't know God is the God, not one of many. And they get a little bit confused over the facts. God did strike down the Egyptians with plagues, but not in the deserts. But either way, they are now the ones that cry out, who will save us? And as they didn't have a box to put their hope in, they looked to themselves. And I tell you this bit in the text, I love this, because I've seen a lot of films now that have like big armies fighting each other. And so when I imagine this bit, I imagine like the general or the commander of the army, like on a horse, like, trotting up and down before the great mass of soldiers. And I can sort of imagine him with sword in his hand, shouting at the top of his voice. I imagine the soldiers, you know, watching him, listening to his every word, just waiting the last sort of like, sort of commands for the battle with shields in this hand, sword, and beating their, shield, their swords against the shields. I just love it. So the guy says, be strong Philistines. And I go, be men, you will be subject to the Hebrews as they've been to you. Be men. And fight. You know, imagine it. So, yeah, thank you. Um, um, so I imagine that's what happened. Because they were scared. And suddenly, verse 10, the Philistines fought. All Israel were defeated and every man fled to his tent. He, they ran scared. And the slaughter was very great. And Israel lost 30,000 foot soldiers. And it's amazing. Once again, this dark story surprises us. Because it's defeat followed by further defeat. There's no happy ending. God seems to allow himself to be shamed rather than support this rebellious people. And so we must stop and say, what is wrong? What has happened here? Because it looks like they've done the right thing. It looks like they've done the the spiritual thing, the religious thing. You know, they've got the ark. But somehow, the ark is their downfall, and they get defeated, and the ark actually gets stolen. What is going on? Well, I guess the best way I can explain it is referring back to a favourite film of mine, Raiders of the Lost Ark. It's quite an old film now. Has anyone actually seen this? Yeah, a few of you. That's great. Raise the Lost Ark. If you've not seen it, worth getting that out on DVD. Raise the Lost Ark. It is part of, I think it is four-part series with Indiana Jones. He's like the hero, hero of the story. And in this first one, he is searching for the same Ark that is in our story. But sadly, the Nazis are trying to do that too. 
They have read the Old Testament stories, Jericho, the Jordan, and they believe whoever owns the ark will become invincible in battle, and they will do anything they can to get their hands on it and abuse its power. And that story just sounds so familiar with what the Israelites had just done. You see, the main issue with the Israelites was that they seemed to want the ark's invincibility without the relationship with God. They've forgotten the rest of the story, that God's blessing flows or follows their obedience. You know, 1 Samuel 2 tells us that Hophni and Phinehas run the most holy place in Israel, and they're sleeping with women, they're stealing people's sacrifices, and it's going unpunished. The people put up with it, and somehow it echoes what's happening through the whole nation. People want the benefits of relationship with God, but not the responsibility. So what what on earth has that got to do with us? Well, let me try and put it like this. The Israelites wanted saving. What did they want saving from? Well, I guess their own version of hell. Not the sort of everlasting torment kind of hell, but their own personal hell, which for them was losing the land that God had promised them, losing the special relationship they had with God and being obliterated by the Philistines. And to save them from this hell, their answer was to find a false saviour, an idol, namely the ark, in order to bring them into the the heaven, I guess, that they wanted, of victorious living. And I want to propose to you tonight that maybe we do the same. Not with an ark, but I would suggest to us that we all have our own personal little hells, and we all have false saviours to save us from them. This is how one pastor puts it. He says this, define for yourself your own personal hell. Hell might be being single. Hell might be being fat. Hell might be being ugly. Hell might be being lonely. Hell might be being poor. Hell might be being stupid or unappreciated. Hell is having no pleasure. Hell is not having a lot of free time. Hell is having a lot of duties and obligations and burdens that you have to get up early in the morning to fulfill. And then decide for yourself, if that is my hell, what will save me from it? What saviour can come and save me from that hell? And so if I'm lonely, I need a friend. That's my saviour. If I'm broke, I need money. That's my saviour. If I'm in debt, I need a loan or a credit card. That's my saviour. If it's pleasure that I worship, then I need to find someone to have sex with me or porn to look at or whatever else that you do because then that that will be your saviour. If you want to be loved, then simple things like a pet will be your saviour because their love is unconditional. Your saviour will get you out of your personal hell and put you in heaven and then you'll be happy. And that's why we choose these saviours or idols. We choose idols that we think will make us happy, that will give us a sense of self-worth, that will make our lives a little bit more heavenly. And then what we do is we choose a saviour to get us out of our hell and then we give our life worshipping that saviour. 
So let me put it like this. I asked a group of leaders that I was teaching this week to sort of give, sort of give me feedback as what they think their sort of personal hells and saviors are. So one of them said this, my hell is being laughed at. And so my personal saviour is being funnier than anyone else in the room. So everyone laughs with me rather than at me. Someone else said, very honest, he said, my personal hell is my wife going off me, like falling out of love with me. And so his full saviour was risking debt from buying presents to win her love. Someone else said, my hell is loneliness. Like, like The worst thing I can think of, the thing that keeps me awake at night, is being left on my own. And he, again, was very honest. He said, I think my full saviour is getting married. Someone else said, my hell is being overweight and unloved. And their full saviour was exercise and dieting. And someone else said, my hell is not leading a growing and successful church. And so my saviour is working non-stop. You see, the Bible says that when mankind was made, back in the Garden of Eden, we were made to worship God. We're all worshippers in the room. However, mankind just couldn't resist worshipping other things apart from God. And so you need to know if you're here tonight, maybe this is your first time here, I believe that you are an incredible, incredibly spiritual person. I believe whatever you say about whether you think there's a God and all that sort of stuff, I believe that you're a worshipper. So if you're an atheist here tonight, then you're probably just worshipping your own sense of, I guess, intellectual ability to work life out for yourself. I mean, who knows what it could be, but we are worshippers here. And we're constantly giving ourselves to people and things that are created rather than the creator himself. And the Bible calls that idolatry. And so what happens is, as we give ourselves to worship these things, we think that we will find freedom in them. We think they will help, though we think they will save us and solve our problems. Whereas actually they end up trapping us. They demand things of us. They demand our time and our energy and our efforts. And actually, after a period of time, you are nothing more than a slave. And so I want to ask you tonight, what's your personal hell? What keeps you awake at night? Like, what do you absolutely fear happening to you? What do you try and avoid? What do you dread? Because if you can label that, then that will give you your personal hell. And once you've done that, I want to ask you, what do you do to save yourself from it? Who or what is your full saviour? You see, from the story, I think just like the Israelites, God allows disappointment and defeat and shame and pain to touch our lives if it means it will awaken you to your true saviour, which is Jesus Christ. And perhaps that's happening right now for some of you. Like you just feel life crushes you. Perhaps you feel desperate tonight. Perhaps there's been a surprise defeat. Perhaps life was going so well and suddenly out of the blue it's just taken a nosedive. Seriously, it is time to turn from your full saviours and worship the true saviour, Jesus Christ. If you don't, two things happen. Number one, 
you will become self-righteous. So listen, this, is, this happens all the time in local churches. You will have, I don't know, where you will have a false saviour and you'll do everything you can to worship that saviour. And if you are successful, you will end up seeing that you've saved yourself. So perhaps by getting married or borrowing some money or finding a relationship or passing your exams, you actually save yourself. And because you were the one to make it happen, what happens is you become proud and self-righteous and arrogant. You've worked hard and you've saved yourself. And they are the worst kinds of people in the church because they think they've done it themselves. Or you don't have the discipline required to do that and so actually you become a failure. So you give yourself to something but it doesn't work out. You can't get your life under control. You try really hard and you can't make it happen. And so actually you're depressed tonight. You're unhappy. You are still in the same place you were three years ago. And can you see whether you're proud and you actually achieve what you want to achieve and save yourself, or if you're depressed because you failed, both do not ultimately save you. Because success or failure don't deal with the sin within and the idolatry in your heart. Remember, the problem is within and the answer is outside. I hope I'm making some sense to you tonight. Here is the good news. The good news that the Bible declares loud and clear is that you're saved by Jesus, not by yourself. You're saved by his works, by his pure and perfect life, his sinless life, his substitutionary death, his bodily resurrection, not your own. He saves you. You do not save yourself. You cannot save yourself. Your full saviors cannot help. And they never will. Again, idolatry and false saviours are rarely bad things. They're usually good things that we elevate into a God thing, which is evil. So listen, there is nothing wrong with getting married. There's nothing wrong with starting relationships. There's nothing wrong with having a job. There's nothing wrong with getting an education. There's nothing wrong with having a pet. Though I don't feel so confident on that one. There's nothing wrong with caring and devoting and pouring yourselves out for the good of others. There's nothing wrong with calling for the ark. The question is, why do you do it? Is it because you worship the creator God or because you worship the created things and people instead of him? So listen, how do you move on? How do you get past this? Because I just, I mean, I, I know myself and I know you guys too well. Everyone in this room has a full saviour. How do you move on? Well, let me give you four things as we sort of try and draw this to a close. Number one, admit your full saviours. Like, admit it. Just recognise that you're likely to have this going on in your life. So listen, for you, you might not want to be disliked. That's your hell. Like people not liking you. And so your full saviour is always saying yes. It's never saying no. So you can get to your false heaven, 
which is everyone saying nice things about you. Or maybe here tonight you cannot stand responsibility. So hell is having responsibility. And so your false saviour is sleeping in or being apathetic or never giving your best so that you can achieve your false heaven, which is chillaxing, which is sitting in your lazy boy, which is never having to lift a finger, letting other people do the work. Or perhaps tonight you don't want to let anyone down. So hell for you is people being disappointed. And so your false saviour is exam success and your false heaven is your parents and friends being pleased with you. Maybe, just like the Israelites, the issue for you tonight is everything is coming undone and you're actually, for the first time in a long time, seeing the futility of your idolatry and it's breaking you. Listen, are you depressed tonight? Are you proud tonight? If you're feeling either of those things, then perhaps the first step is to admit it. Admit that you've been worshipping the wrong thing. Now the tricky thing is, false saviours are really difficult to spot. They hide themselves really well. So there'll be numbers of you across the room that sort of say, I agree with what you're saying, Matt. I like the principle. I get what you're doing, but I cannot see it in my life. That's very common. And so what do you do? Well, I would suggest you find the full saviours in your life by looking over the long haul at your life. I'm talking weeks and months. And the question is, are you growing in your security and your peace and your joy and your love? Are your relationships growing and deepening and maturing? Or are you unhappy Are you struggling to move on? Are you becoming a worse person? Are you loving less? Are you angry more? Are you depressed more? Are you feeling more proud? Both those sets of things could be called the fruit of your life. You are producing certain fruit right now and probably you've got a mixture of those things. If you do have any of those fruits that are not good then I want to gently suggest to you that something is wrong because they are not the fruit of the Spirit. Don't just try and deal with the fruit. Go to the roots. Where does that behaviour coming from? I'm sure it will be a full saviour and your first step is to admit. Secondly, break the power. Break your false saviours. In the Old Testament, they would break and destroy idols. Moses took the golden calf, smashed it, ground it up and made the people of God eat it. We need to break our idols. You need to break them. How do you break them? Like if you're married, how do you break your idol? If you're going out with someone, what do you do? Well, the deal is you change your relationship to them. So in terms of worship, your, your worshipping relationship, you say, perhaps they've been elevated above the creator God and you need to change the way that you relate to them. That is how you break idols in your life. Thirdly, replace your false saviour with the saviour. Remember, you can't just stop committing adult, uh, adultery, idolatry, <laughs> And maybe that's your thing. 
But remember, you can't just stop committing idolatry because of what? Because you are a worshipper. You're built for worship. And so you must replace your false saviour rather than just pretend it doesn't exist anymore because otherwise your passion will move on to something else. So th- this is how it works for me. This is slightly embarrassing and I got a lot of stick this afternoon when I went home after my wife heard it. Okay. I get a little bit cross and angry when I come home from work about 5.30, 6 o'clock if the food my wife has prepared for me is not how I want it. It's embarrassing, but I have a disproportionate amount of anger and frustration in me compared to how bad the food actually is. (laughs) Or however good the food is. um. So listen, let me break that down because that is what's going on in my life, and the more you laugh, the more embarrassed I get, so (laughs) stop laughing. Um, So what's my false saviour? What's my false saviour? Well, my false saviour is great food that makes me happy. That's my false saviour. Why? Because hell is not being rewarded for my sacrifice and service in the workplace. So I work very hard during the day and I want to be rewarded and food is my reward. And so to stop me reaching that hell of not being rewarded, I will go to sort of the standard and quality of my food. And what happens is if my worship of good food is thwarted because my wife has been too busy and too preoccupied with my kids to cook it perfectly, I find anger comes from within. And it surprises me how strongly I feel. Now, I may be accountable and confess my anger to someone. I say, look, what's going on? I just get, like, cross if my wife has cooked the food I want. What's going on? And I might, like, share that with them. But listen, I have got to deal with the actual worship at its root. Otherwise, if I don't deal with this desire of being happy with the food that I get, my anger will just go elsewhere. So I come home and I'm still wanting that sense of reward from my hard day. Pip might create the perfect meal or do a really bad job and I control all my anger. I will just get angry at something else that destroys that sense of reward. So if the kids are going crazy, I will just resent having to deal with them because I just want a good time when I get home. Or the house is a mess. So the last thing I want to do is get the hoover out. Or if the dog needs a walk, I've just sat down. You're thwarting my worship, and I get cross. And I must understand simple things, that Jesus is my reward. He is everything I need. He's the one that makes me happy. He's the one that fulfills me, not the food on my plate or the tidiness of my house. So I need to admit it. I need to break the power of it. I need to change the relationship, and I need to replace it 
Otherwise, it just moves to something else, and I replace it with getting my needs met in Christ. And lastly and obviously, that leads to worship of the Saviour. That's the last thing we must do. You're a worshipper. I'm a worshipper. We are all worshippers in the room. We worship anything and anyone. If we are not raising our hands to worship him, then we will lift our hands to worship our favourite football team, our favourite band, our favourite minor Christian celebrity, the best film that we've seen, a family member, a girl or a boy, because we will just worship. We just will. And in worshipping Jesus Christ, it puts everything else in the right order. It means that we can enjoy all those created things in the right way. So I can drink and not get drunk because I don't worship alcohol and it doesn't save me. In fact, it doesn't rule over me anymore. I rule over it. It means that I can eat without becoming a glutton because food doesn't save me or rule over me. I rule over it. I can have friends without worshipping their approval because I worship Jesus. And I have my love and my relationship and my stability with him. And so it means I can enjoy my friends and I don't elevate them to this status of false saviour where I seek their approval at every turn. It means I can work really hard at my studying or at my workplace without it becoming a false saviour. And where it doesn't take over my life, consume my thoughts, mean that I don't get enough time to worship God. I worship Jesus and it allows the job and the exams and the degree to remain in their proper place with the proper perspective. And so my appeal to you is to let Saviour Jesus be Saviour. And let life be an opportunity to worship him and then enjoy all the created things. To serve, to steward, as you were made to, the gifts that God gives on earth. So what do you do? When you get home, what do you need to do? With your accountability partner, what do you need to do? You need to admit your saviours. You need to break the power of those saviours. You need to replace your full saviours. And then you need to worship Jesus. Amen? Amen. Do you want to stand with me, guys? We're going to sing. We're going to worship. Um, let me just pray for us first, then. Okay, guys, do you want to just bow your heads? realise that I've sort of pummeled you there with a whole load of stuff and um, it's important you have a moment just to reflect. I'd hate for this, I'll tell you what, this is my prayer, I'd hate for you guys just to know more about how idolatry works in your lives and you go home thinking that that's a great concept and you don't allow the Holy Spirit to bring conviction to your heart that leads to repentance. So this is about you doing business with the Holy Spirit now and asking God to show you. If you are stuck tonight, you have no idea where your full saviours are, why don't you just ask now, God, like, what's my hell? What's my personal saviour? And uh, we welcome your presence, Lord. Thank you that you're here. Thank you that you love to speak to us. Thank you, you're not shy, you don't hold back, but when we ask you, when we're thirsty, you love to come, and so we welcome your presence amongst us. And I pray, Lord, you just 
help us to just hear your voice now. I just pray, Lord, against confusion, and I pray across the room, there'd be a real sense of the Holy Spirit bringing conviction, pinpointing areas of our lives where we have full saviors. So let's just, uh, just remain quiet for a moment. Just give you some space to think. just want to admit um, that we do worship other things aside from you and we just want to break the power of those things in our lives we just want to cast them down we want to change our relationship to them in light of our worship to you and I pray Lord that we would replace these saviors with the saviour So draw worship from us now. Thank you that you promise as we confess our sins, you're faithful and just, and you forgive our sins. And so please, Lord, let us taste your forgiveness and let us walk into the light as you are in the light. And let Jesus be worshipped in our lives, in our community. Amen. 